Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Uh, we've been on this journey through the Gospel of John since almost week one. Um, we actually started working through the Gospel of John the first Sunday in November. And so, um, so here we are several months down this track, and we've gotten into John chapter 13. Last week we began the chapter, looked at the first 17 verses, and to me, it, it, to understand the whole um, of what's going on, like these are like the final hours of Jesus' life here on earth. Okay, I mean, it's drawing near. At the beginning of John chapter 13, Jesus says, the hour has come. You know, or the time is here. Like it's all this stuff I've said is about to happen. It's going down now. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of him knowing that within a few short hours he'd be arrested, he'd be tried, he'd be beaten, he'd be uh, killed. In the, in the midst of all this stuff going on, he stops. And they're all gathered around a table. And this kind of like a U-shaped table. They're all, back in those days, they reclined back there. So their feet were kind of away from the table. They would recline on like their left elbow usually, and they would eat with their right hand. And they're just reclining, they're eating um, this, this feast. And what's amazing, we, when you read in some of the other Gospels that talk about this scenario, is um, the, all the disciples are arguing. Right? So you have Jesus probably in this contemplative state, like he knows what's going on, these thoughts are going through his head, um, and he's just kind of surveying the scene, and the disciples are all arguing. And they're all trying to figure out who's going to be the best disciple, who, who's going to get the seat of honor when they get to heaven. Like, who's the greatest of all the disciples? That's what they're arguing about. Right? And in the midst of this, Jesus realized that all their feet are dirty. But again, like today, like that isn't, you know, unless you're a middle schooler, maybe. Um, most of us, like, we clean our feet pretty regularly. Right? I mean, and, and most of us wear, like, socks and we have covered shoes unless we are at the beach or summertime, right? But during this time, they're wearing sandals, like just like Sarah told us. I mean, they're wearing sandals, and, and the roads are, um, they're not paved like we have today. They're, at best, they're cobblestone. Uh, remember, their major mode of transportation was either walking or involved some form of animal. And again, use your imagination. Those of us have been to a parade, usually behind a horse, walks a guy with um, a broom and something and a shovel, because typically those animals, when they have to go, they go, right? Not to be overly crude, but that's what happens. And so we have to understand, like that, back in the Bible times, like there, there may be parades, but there's probably not a guy walking behind it with shovels. And so these streets, I mean, it's not like it's this really overly clean. It's dirty, it's dusty, it's an arid um, culture, um, and, and, and so the feet get dirty. And so what normally occurred, you get invited to someone's home, you show up for dinner, and the lowest slave, okay, the lowest servant in the home, it was his responsibility to wash the feet of the guests. All right, so they get in here, they get ready for this, this supper. They have no idea it's the last supper, mind you. They just, they're getting together. No one washes the feet. And it dawns on Jesus, everyone's feet are dirty. And so he himself sits up, and he's, he's at the center of the table. He gets up, he goes, and he finds this basin, this bowl of water. He takes his outer garment off, takes this towel, wraps it around himself, and he goes and he begins to clean and wash the feet of each of the disciples. 
And so last week we talked about that. We, we talked about how in our lives it was awesome. In the story, he gets to Peter, and Peter's like, whoa, stop, time out. You're not washing my feet. Like, and, and at first glance, when we read it in Scripture, we, we think, wow, how humble is Peter? Like, he gets this, but he, his idea was not a, a stop in humility. It was like, no, 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 if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be me type mentality. Jesus says, no, 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 if, if, you don't, if you're not with me, you're against me type statement. And Peter's like, well, then wash all of me, like head to toe, like full bath. I want the full scrub down. And Jesus is like, no, Peter, you don't get it. Like once you've been bathed, once you've taken the bath, like you, you don't need to take another full bath. You know, it's a symbolism of our salvation. Once saved, always saved. Once you accept Christ as your Savior, he is there forever. There's no losing him. But the illustrated point here that Jesus makes is along the journey in life, along our path, our feet are going to get dirty. And so there comes times in our life that we need to sit back, we need to clean our feet. We need to wash our feet. And so last week we talked about that. We talked about how in our own lives, on our path, maybe we've gotten off the path a bit and we've walked through some mud. And maybe today was the day that we need to wash our feet again, get clean, and get back on the right path. We also talked about how at the end of this, after Jesus washes all the disciples' feet, he gets back and he sits back down and he says, all right, here's the story, here's the deal. This is why I did it. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't go back and say, all right, guys, now who's going to wash my feet? He concludes by saying, now this is my example. You go and do unto others. And so it sets a, a perfect example for us in our journey of life. The people we come in contact with, our friends, our neighbors, our fellow faith family. There's times when there are people when their feet are dirty and dusty. And they need someone to come along and help them wash their feet. And are we going to be willing because it's never convenient, right? It, it never works in our schedule, right? It, 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 never, it never quite fits on my time. And it's not usually a quick answer. It involves an inconvenience and it involves action. And so we talked about that last week. And, and so we, we concluded with the washing of the feet. And then this morning we're going to pick up in verse 18. Through verse 30. I'm going to read it and then we're going to pray and then we're going to jump right into it. So, John 13, verse 18 says, And I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Verse 21 says, And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Philip, or so Simon Peter motioned to him, to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. So the disciple leaned against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom 
I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are doing, to, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the worship and music, the songs that we've sang. In particular, the song we just finished, One Thing Remains. This, this love of yours that continually pursues us. And we see that played out in this particular passage this morning. Well, I thank you that, that we've been able to see that in testimony as Sarah came before us with a broken spirit and a broken heart for these children, your children. And you placed the love on her heart for them to show them just a glimpse of you, to show them some light in a dark world. This morning, I pray, God, as we begin to look into your word, that you give us open ears, open minds. I pray that you begin to dissect our hearts. I pray that you begin to melt them. I pray that the Holy Spirit invades this place and changes each and every one of us. Lord, I pray that as, as I lead us in this teaching, that you give me your words, your heart, your passion. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. To me, this is a, um, a very intense scene. Uh, the title of today's message is Two Hearts Revealed. And we're going to look at two hearts that we see in this particular story uh, that are dramatically different. Leading up to this part, um, so we have this very beginning in verse uh, 18 through like 20. Uh, you know, and this comes at the heels right after he gets done washing the feet. And he, he gives, makes that, this statement there. Um, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. So there's a verse here he quotes from Psalms, one, or Psalms 41 verse 9 when he says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Okay, if I were you, I'd underline that passage. Um, your, your Bible may have the cross reference in there. If it doesn't, it comes from Psalms, one, four, or Psalms 41 verse 9. We're going to come back to this because this is a critical part of a, the second heart that we're going to talk about today. But he goes and he, he, he quotes some scripture to back this up. He's tying in the Old Testament and the New. And what, again, what I, what I am so grabbed by this particular story is remember Jesus is 100% God and he's all man too. Like what we didn't dwell on a lot last week is that symbolism of Jesus going and um, taking his outer garments off and then putting this this towel around him, um, taking this role of a servant. Okay, that, that is a great example of what Jesus did as he left heaven to come to earth. He let go of his outer garments and wrapped himself in man. Okay, and again, Jesus knows he, all the emotions that we have, right? This, the same things that we wrestle with, the tears, the laughter, all that stuff, Jesus has the exact same emotions. 
Jesus knows what is about to occur. I want us to be crystal clear about this. Like He knows everything that's coming his way. He knows all the beatings. He knows all the mocking. He, he knows he's going to stand before all these crowds. As I told you last week, he knows he's going to go through this time of complete separation from God. Folks, like that's what gives him the angst in his soul. That's when um, a few hours from here, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to his father, God, and his, his own body, his physical body begins to break down there when the sweats, uh, when his tear or sweat drops begin to turn to blood. Like he is so broken because of this separation between he and God. Like he knows all this is going on. And what to me is so amazing, knowing all, all this stuff is coming, he tries to take care of the disciples. Right? He, he goes to them and, and he's saying, like, guys, this is what's about to go down. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus told the disciples, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to die one of these days. This isn't the first time. But they've been following Jesus for three years now. And this journey, the last few weeks and few months, has gotten very intense. And so a while back when Jesus said this, it wasn't on the radar. Like, he's being celebrated, not hunted. And now all of a sudden their ears pick up because they realize there's a lot of truth to this. He's wanted. And so Jesus tries to care for his disciples, and he gives them this information about what's going to go down. Verse 19 and 20. He says this, um, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Like he wants more than just this personal loyalty between he and the gang. He's saying, guys, like this is really going to go down. And so when it goes down, take comfort. Realize I'm in control. This, what's going to happen is not going to catch me off guard. Like this isn't going to be some big wow surprise factor. I know it's coming. So be prepared. Verse 20 says, And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Although this isn't the primary topic of today's message, there's a great truth and a great exhortation that Jesus gives the disciples in that verse 20. He makes it crystal clear and he says, guys, he, he connects the disciples to him and him to God. Just like he does to us, all believers. It's this great call to be missionaries. One of the things um, I've, I've become fearful of in our culture, in church culture, is um, that we have people that we designate as missionaries, right? that we send money and they, they go to Africa or Brazil or, or where, China, where, wherever, and that's good and we need to do that, okay? I, I, it's, it's needed. But sometimes when we use that word missionary, our mind naturally goes there. Like to the person that we send money to once a month 
to continue to spread the gospel in Ethiopia. See, God did tell us that we were supposed to take the gospel to the uttermost part of the world, to the ends of the world. But you realize that part of that ends of the world is the end of the street that we live on. Like, we might have the ability to write a check, and that's great, and that's a blessing that God's given us, and we ought to do that. But that shouldn't be our only effort as missionaries. Missionary is a personal thing. We've all been equipped. We've all been called by God to be missionaries. That doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's always a happy thing to do. Doesn't mean that there's never friction. I mean, again, case in point, think of the one who's telling the story, who's given the statement. It wasn't easy for him. But Jesus says, listen, I'm sending you. I'm empowering you to go on behalf of me. And if they reject you, they reject me. And if they reject me, they're rejecting my father. Now, I don't, I've never been in, um, coach, I've never been in a college football locker room before a game. But I'm pretty sure there's some pretty fiery pep talks that go on, right? We're not too far away from that season. Right, those those words of motivation, and and it's probably I can I can guess that there's emotions that begin to run high, and it's kind of quiet, and the coach gets up there and gives a rah rah speech, and this oh, oh, let's go, and we tackle the world, right? It's the same thing Jesus is doing here. He's like, this is this is this is before the game starts. He's not going to be there at halftime, <laughs> so th- th- he's he's getting the boys together, he's getting the team together, and he's like, all right, guys, here's the deal. You guys are going to go. And if they reject you, they're rejecting me and my father. I don't know about you guys, but that'd be an offensive line I'd want. <laughs> right? I mean, I think that's what I'd, I'd take that. You can win a lot of ball games that way. And that's what Jesus is saying, guys. Okay, he's like, listen, let's not forget the gravity of, of what's going on. Like, I've spent this time with you. I've trained you. I've given you this stuff, fellas. We spent three years. Now go and do. And while you're doing, realize I've got your back. And my father has mine. How great is that? So it doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that being a missionary, sharing our faith, being a real legitimate Christian is easy. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean we got Jesus and God on our side, and they've got our back. And they're going to push us through whatever obstacle we need to be pushed through. All right. So here we go. He gets done saying all of this. Verse 21 says, And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled. That Greek word for troubled means agitated. That he's getting... His, his feathers are ruffled. He testified and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He calls out dinner table in front of the whole gang. One of you guys here are going to betray me. 
And then they all start to look at each other. Like they have no idea who's going to do it. Like they, have, they are completely perplexed. I believe half those guys in their heart of hearts think they might be the one that's about to do it. Like they have no clue. Guys, the last two weeks, last week and this week, um, I'm, I'm going to probably preach a little hard on, um, on church and playing church. Here's what blows my mind in this whole story is these guys have been together for three years. I mean, I can remember um, my college days vaguely. Um, I lived in a dorm, so I had roommates. Now, each year was different roommates. I couldn't even imagine having the same roommate for my college career. But I'm pretty sure in the course of one year, in the course of one semester, you got to know that roommate pretty well, right? Because you wake up, they're there. You go to sleep, they're there. They snore, you wake up. I mean, it's whatever. They don't wash their clothes. The room begins to smell. You smell it, right? You know the people. There's no separation for these guys for three years. They're with each other all the time. What blows my mind is in the midst of that, guys, you realize nobody in that group besides Jesus realized that Judas was the one who was going to betray him. Nobody even guessed. And Jesus is agitated. He says, listen, one of you guys is about to betray me. Technically, there's two in that group that are going to betray him. And so... um, we see here the disciples looked at one another, uncertain to whom he spoke. Verse uh, 23 says, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And so here we begin. We, we have these guys sitting on a U-shaped table, reclining. Um, and we have Jesus at the head of the table in the middle of the U. And you have two disciples on each side of them, and then it begins to circle around. Peter is on the opposite end of Jesus. So Peter gets this, and we all know Peter likes to be in the thick of it, right? He wants the answers. He wants to know what's going on. Um, there's all these people. Jesus makes this big statement, so I'm sure they're gasping for air, and there are these little side conversations going on. And so we have this disciple that's identified as the one whom Jesus loves. Okay, And this, this disciple was on the right side of Jesus. You remember, Jesus is propped up probably on his left elbow. They're eating with their right. And, and this Bible tells us that he leans back and he's leaning against the chest of Jesus. Like, could you imagine that, guys? I mean, imagine, imagine putting yourself in, the, in that situation. Not only are you sitting next to Jesus Christ, but you lean back and your head is leaning against his chest. And Peter motions to him, and he's probably mouthing to this disciple, hey, who is it? Fine, ask him who it is. Right? I, I'm, that's what I'm guessing he's saying, right? And he's probably not all that quiet about it, but he's, he's motioning this disciple. He wants to know who it is. Here's the first heart I want us to think about. This 
disciple whom Jesus loved. This phrase, disciple whom he loved, is used uh, several times. If you look later on in the gospel, John 19, verse 25, Jesus is on a cross. He's nailed to the cross now. And he looks out, and at his feet, he identifies those who are there. So John 19, 25 says this. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. So this identified disciple whom he loved was next to him at the Last Supper. He's at the foot of the cross. John 20, verse 2. Says, uh, let me start at the very beginning here. Um, now, the day, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. Okay, so Jesus had already been, has has died and has been placed in the tomb. Early, while it was still dark, he saw the stone had been rolled or taken away. She had saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So Peter and this disciple whom Jesus loved came to this empty tomb. Later on, you go to the next chapter, chapter 21. A, a familiar story probably to most of us. Uh, Jesus appears. Okay, he's been resurrected. He appears to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, right? And the guys are out there. They've been fishing all night. Don't find nothing. Don't find nothing. They're not catching anything. A lot like when I go fishing, right? Um, so they've been fishing, and then Jesus appears, and he tells them to throw the, the, the net over, and, it, and it's full, right? And so you see there in verse um, 7, as Jesus, they're not sure who it is, and uh, verse 7 says, um, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So again, we see this same guy, the same guy who was at the right side of Christ the Last Supper, the same guy who, who was at the foot of Christ at the cross, the same guy who was there and identified Christ when he appears. Who is this guy? The very end of this chapter 21 says, um, so Peter turned, so verse 20 of 21 says, so Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. We're about to find out who it is. The disciple whom Jesus loved following them and the one also that had leaned against him during the Last Supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, um, if this is my will, that he will remain until I come, that is, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread around the people. So there's this rumor going around that this one whom Jesus loved would not die. And Jesus says, listen, that's up to me. Like, if, if I want it to happen, it'll happen. If it don't, whatever. Verse 24, we find out who this one is. This disciple whom Jesus loved. Verse 24 says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that this testimony or his testimony is true. This disciple whom Jesus loved was John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John. Like at first we think, wow, how audacious is this guy? Bragging? I'm writing this so I can write whatever I want, right? 
No, I don't believe that's the heart. I believe when John sits back and reflects on this, he is amazed, amazed that Jesus loved him. Was John always known for love? Because he ends up earning the name the Apostle of Love. You read 1 John 40 times. 40 times the word love is used. Was he always that way? No. Not at all. Um, you go back and you can read Mark 3.17 when Jesus is calling the disciples. He identifies these people. James and John earn a nickname. They're called the sons of thunder. Okay? Again, not love, thunder. I wonder how they got that name. Well, we don't know exactly there, but when you read in Luke chapter 9, there's a story. The disciples are, are in Samaria. They're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is leading them to Jerusalem. You guys remember, we've talked about this before. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other, despised each other, right? And so Samaritans cool with Jesus until they find out he's going to Jerusalem. And then they want nothing to do with him. They reject him. They tell him to leave. And so James and John's response, Jesus, let us call fire down from heaven and burn this place. That doesn't sound like love, does it? It doesn't sound like love. You guys realize um, at that last supper, John's probably somewhere between 18 and 20 years old. He'd been with Jesus for three years. He writes the gospel here. It's about 90 years old when he writes the gospel of John. He reflects back on his life. He realizes what Jesus had done. And I think, I believe, there's no verse that backs this up. This is, this is me stepping out and saying what, what I think and believe. It's that moment when he's reclining at that table with his head against the heart of Jesus. And he begins to hear the heartbeat of Jesus. It begins to change him. Folks, that's the same for us. You know, we have the ability to hear the heartbeat of Jesus. How, how, do, we, how do we hear the heartbeat of Jesus? How do we get close to Jesus? There's probably no greater way than to read this right here, our Bibles. To read this love novel that was written for us. I say that this story that we read tonight, this morning, two hearts are revealed. The first heart was this heart of love. The second heart was Judas. As I said at the beginning, verse 19, when Jesus quotes from the Old Testament, he's quoting Psalm 41, verse 9. It's a psalm that David had wrote. There's a lot of parallels between David in the Old Testament and Jesus. And so in this story, it's this prophetic parallelism that's about to take place. He quotes David, right? Again, Jesus, one of his names was the son of David. If you go back and you read Psalm 41, verse 9, you'll see the, that, that verse. It's not like a portion. It's the verse. 
David is heartbroken when he, when he writes Psalms 41. His most trusted advisor, his counselor, Ahithophel, had betrayed him. You remember the story. Absalom, David's son, decided to revolt against him. Absalom goes in Ahithophel, David's closest advisor, the, the man who had eaten at his table. The, the, almost the entire reign of David up to this point, Ahithophel was there with him. When Absalom goes, Ahithophel goes with him. David gets word of this. His heart's broken. This man, this, this man that I, I treated like my own. For years we'd been together. He'd say all the good times, he saw the bad times. He saw my entire heart. He was like family to me. There's a lot of similarities between Ahithophel and Judas. What I think is amazing about the story is Ahithophel. His son's name was Eliam. You read the end of 2 Samuel chapter 23. He's identified as one of David's mighty men. Those were big time dudes. So Ahithophel's son is Eliam, one of David's mighty men, who happens to be the father of Bathsheba. And so somewhere in the life of Ahithophel, he saw this treacherous act of David on his granddaughter. And he allowed that bitterness to take root in his heart. He played the game. I mean, he acted like a good, wise counselor for David. He acted like he had David's best interest at heart. But when the revolt occurred, he jumped ship. Go back and read 2 Samuel 15 through 17. And you'll read the story, how he goes and he tells Absalom, chapter, I think, it's, I think it's chapter 16, his advice to him, to go take David's concubines, go to the roof and commit adultery with him in front of all of Israel. That same roof that David had sat and pondered about Bathsheba. That was bitterness in his heart and soul, and he never got rid of it. He created this demon within him. Second Samuel 17, verse 23, we read and we realize Ahithophel lost his standing with Absalom. Absalom was not going to be able to conquer David. And so Ahithophel left, goes home, gets his affairs in order, and then goes and commits suicide, hangs himself from a tree. That's Ahithophel, Old Testament. The same one that Jesus refers to. And then we see the picture of Judas. 
John asks who it is, and Jesus says, listen, whoever I dip this bread to and give, that's who it is. So he dips it and gives to Judas. This is what I want you guys to be very clear about. For some people, some, you, hear, you may hear someone say, well, well, Judas was created with the sole purpose of um, being the one who would betray Christ. Like he had no option. Like, like he was designed and created for that moment. Listen, folks, um, Judas had free will like every one of us did. For three years, Jesus gave Judas opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to change. In this culture of the day, the one seated at the left hand, that seat was the seat of honor. Judas sat in that seat. You guys, the one who's about to betray Christ. And Jesus puts him right next to him in the seat of honor. And this token of dipping the bread and feeding it to the person in honor was a symbol of love. And Jesus goes and he dips that. And he's reaching out to Judas. And he's giving him that chance. Like, I love you. Man, think this thing through. I love you. The Bible tells us in that scripture that as soon as Judas ate the bread, Satan possessed him. It was over. That moment, Jesus reaches out in love. Judas takes it, swallows it. Satan possesses him. At that moment, Jesus is looking eye to eye with Satan. And his response to him is, go quickly. Do what you're going to do. Verse 30 says, he goes. The disciples are all confused, want to know what's going on, but they don't think that he's the guy. I mean, they, they just assume because he holds the money bag, he's got to go buy some stuff for the feast, or maybe he's going to give something to the poor. They've got no clue it's him. Verse 30 ends with, and it was dark. It was dark. All throughout John, all throughout the gospel, all throughout the New Testament, we see this comparison between light and dark. This past Wednesday night, Fuller did the, the youth, and he talked some about salt and light. We've been called to be light. Jesus called himself, called himself the light of the world. 
This isn't John just saying, hey, it's nighttime. He's making a definite point. It was dark. It was evil. Judas had given in. And here's some 2,000 odd years later, it's still dark for Judas. In 2,000 years from now, it will be dark for Judas. What scares me about this passage, as I told you guys earlier, is as a pastor, and I'm not sitting in judgment of anyone in this room, if you go into later on the New Testament to Second Peter chapter 3, it talks about some of this stuff towards the end. And there's a pretty fascinating statement. As all these kind of despicable things are, are, are mentioned about our society and all that kind of stuff. And so often we read about that and we think about it, that's today. Timothy makes this deep statement. He says um, that they had the appearance of godliness. I tell you, and I know I've told you this before. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. We're, we're almost done. But Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. To me, um, is I think one of the most haunting verses in the entire Bible. Like, I can honestly tell you guys, like, I, as a pastor, I wake up distraught over this. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, um, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What scares me about that verse is those are people standing before Jesus. And those are people who, who went to church and they checked all the boxes off in life. They were the good neighbor. They were the, the, the good husband, the good wife, the good children. They had all the right things except for one. They never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Guys, there's only one way. Only one way for us to spend eternity in heaven. Judas 
for three years sat at the foot of Jesus. For three years he traveled with him. He slept near him. He ate near him. For three years he saw Jesus do miracle after miracle. He was there when he healed the blind man. He was there when he made those who couldn't walk, walk. He was there when he healed the lady of the blood and ferment. He was there when they were in a crowd of over 5,000 people with no food and Jesus fed everybody. He was there on the boat in the middle of the storm when the waves were rocking and they were all scared and Jesus walked and said, peace, be still. He was there. But he never gave his trust and faith to Jesus. And today, he's living in anguish in hell because of that. And there's no other, there's no pretty way to paint that picture. When we read this story, there are two hearts, and we have to choose which one we're going to take, what heart we'll have. Will it be a heart similar to John of love? One who will follow Jesus all the days of their life. Far from perfect, but will trust in him. Or will be Judas, who will reject him. It's a huge decision. But it's one every single person who draws a breath makes. And going to church does not make you a Christian. Reading your Bible does not make you a Christian. Singing a worship song does not make you a Christian. And I'm not going to try and scare anybody or I don't want to cause anyone to question decisions that they've made or haven't made. But my prayer as we go through our invitation this morning is that we ponder and pray and think through it. And if you feel God tugging at your heart, if you feel conviction, if you feel this twinge where you know you've never done that, again, folks, you may have been gone to church, you, you may have been born in the church nursery and you may have had perfect attendance for the last 60 years. That's why we say time after time after time it's not about religion. It will never be about religion. It will forever always be about relationship. Not with us, but with the one who was pierced and nailed to a cross and paid the highest price for us. Let's pray.